brought to you by Penguin. That afternoon, I related my towel and jaws dropped. <laughs> Steve said, wow, I have to film that. Hello and welcome to the award-winning Penguin podcast with me, Nihal Arthanayaka. Now, this is the place where leading authors unpack their trunk of creativity by choosing a handful of objects that have inspired their work. My guest today has had an extraordinary life that the Oscar-winning director Steve McQueen made a film about for the BBC recently. His first novel, Brixton Rock, published in 1999, began to chart these experiences through fiction. Amongst many achievements, he was awarded an MBE for services to literature in 2008, and in 2016, his young adult book, Cronkton Nights, won the 50th Guardian Children's Fiction Prize. Now he's written Cane Warriors, the story of 14-year-old Moa, a slave on a Jamaican plantation in 1760, who becomes part of an uprising which is based on a true story. I'm speaking down the line to none other than Alex Wheatle, MBE. Yeah, a lot of my friends uh, refer to the MBE as member of the Brixton Empire. <laughs> <laughs> Where does the Brixton Empire stretch out to? Does it go into Thornton Heath and Streatham and um, Vauxhall or does it stay very much within the confines of Brixton, do you think? You know South London, so maybe as far as the old Cat Whiskers, which was on Streatham High Road. Right, OK. And down, and down to Elephant and Castle. Well, the thing about it is, is actually the Brixton Empire is global. I mean, you speak to any rapper in America and the first place they will say is Brixton. Yeah, we've had Nelson Mandela come to visit. We've had Mike Tyson and so many other dignitaries. They seem to want to come to Brixton. It has that um, reach, if you like, that uh, no other place has in London. What is it, as someone who is a son of Brixton, the energy or energies that define Brixton? When I first um, moved there as a teenager, I was 15 years of age. I was born there, but I had to um, move away because um, I, I lived in a children's home. But when I returned, it was just the music, the smells, the way people walked and dressed, the uh, the banter. It was just so exciting for me. It, it had so much energy. You could almost smell it on the streets. Going back after being born there and then going to the children's home, of course, um, it's hard to describe in kind of pithy sentences what it is like to be in a children's home. I've interviewed Lim Cisse many times about his experiences there. What were yours? Uh, most of the time it was brutal, especially when I was young. And uh, that will be uh, seen on Steve McQueen's um, dramatisation of my young life. But my escape was um, comics that offered a space for me to at least um, at night or whenever I could find a discarded Beano or Wizarding Chips or Dandy uh, magazine that offered me solace, if you like. But um, the everyday... Um, grind and the loneliness. I think that's what really got me because, yes, there was physical abuse and occasionally there was um, sexual abuse. But um, what really uh, lived with me every day was that this abject loneliness. I mean, I remember on Sundays, on visiting day, I would look out to the street and look out the window and wonder where my family were, why weren't they coming to visit me when my um, my my peers, they had their aunts, their uncles, 
their dads and mums every now and again. So that was really what um, was so traumatic. I mean, even in my later years, it took me um, so long to get over that kind of feeling of loneliness that I didn't belong anywhere. What does hope look like in that environment, Alex? In my seven, eight-year-old mind, that came in the, um, the shape of someone like Pelé. Um, I remember watching the 1970 World Cup and um, I think a neighbour, one of the other children's homes, they had a coloured television there. And there was Pelé in his golden shirt with that incredible football team that Brazil had in 1970. And it just made me feel so much better about myself. There was a black man who was considered the best soccer player on the planet. And so that offered me hope, that offered me you know what, um, when I grow up, maybe things won't be so bad. There's a black man who's king of the world when it comes to football. Maybe there'd be some kind of life for me. And so that offered me hope. It was a great sports stars, Pele, Muhammad Ali, and later on there was um, the cricketer Viv Richards. And that gave me a lot, of, a lot of hope and belief. I mean, you're talking about three absolute giants, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, Pele, Muhammad Ali... Wow. Well, you and need Viv to. Richards. Yeah. You, you need to cling on to something at that vulnerable age when you're so fragile and you don't see anything because on television at the time when I was growing up, um, I remember, um, you know, the Tarzan uh, episode TV would come on on a Saturday morning and uh, any black man who he challenged would get beaten. So it was very difficult trying to find a, a black role model on television or in popular culture. And so I had to look for sport to offer me that. Let's go back because your first object you've mentioned already a couple of times, and it was comics. Why? Why this world of Beano, Wizard and Chips, The Dandy, Shoot Magazine? What was it about these comics? It put a smile on my face. It, it took me away from my present experiences, you know, living the drudgery, the misery of the children's home. And so I would close my eyes after reading the comic strip and imagine myself actually being a Bash Street kid or actually playing against Billy's Boots or actually um, walking the street with Lord Snooty or, or going on an errand with Desperate Dan. And, and that's how my imagination worked. And that offered me a space where I could go to at night or early in the morning where I didn't imagine myself that I was in the children's home I actually um, figured that, yes, I'm there with those Bash Street kids. I'm there with Billy Wiz. I'm raising him. So that is how I managed to um, find these, um, if you like, these coping me mechanisms, which I desperately needed at the time. I needed something, and that is what I clung on to. And so, yes, I treasured those comics. And sometimes they were discarded on a dormitory floor, uh, around about Christmas time, uh, it was very. Uh, I got very lucky because some of the older boys they would have um, Charles Buckland's football annual, and I would devour that late at night and imagine that I was playing football with Bobby Charlton, Bobby Moore, George Best, any picture or Pele. Um, I would sometimes cut out, much to the uh, the anger of an older boy, and and stick it on my headboard or or, or on the wall behind me. This. A system that you grew up in and this escape through comics, it was about reading, but it was also about imagination, wasn't it? And you clearly had an amazing imagination. Yes, it was about both of those things. 
And that's why um, I wallowed in it for so, for so much of my time. It was a solace for me. It was a healing for me. It was a therapy for me. You had a role model if you wanted to be a boxer. You had a role model if you wanted to be a footballer. Yeah. You had a role model if you wanted to be a cricketer. But using the phrase, you need to see it to be it, where was the role model to be a writer? That came along later, much later. Um, in my late teens, I served a term in prison after the, um, the Brixton riots of 1981. And... Even though I had read fiction, say, 9, 10, 11 years of age, before football and sport took over, I kind of dropped that as one of my habits through my teenage years. But um, after going into prison and there's not too much opportunities of playing cricket or football there, I managed to reclaim reading again. And my cellmate, Simeon, as you will see in the Steve McQueen drama, he uh, presented to me a copy of C.L.R. James' The Black Jacobins, which is about the, um, the first successful slave revolt in Caribbean history in Haiti. And it blew my mind. It just, I thought, wow, they did not teach me this at school. You know, and I didn't really engage in history that much unless it was about exciting wars or something. For the writer to feature a black man leading a... Uh, a rebellion, a respected black man who was a hero. It, it was just incredible experiencing that because I never really had that in fiction in my experience before. And so that was a game changer for me. So that made me hungry to seek out any other narratives that spoke about um, my ancestry or the, or the black diaspora around the world. Sadly, if you look at the statistics of kids who are in the system and at children's homes, the outcomes are potentially prison, uh, homelessness, addiction. How did you break that cycle? To be honest, it took me a while because I needed to um, try and get some belief in me. And that process started during my prison term with my cellmate who um, said, it always repeated to me, Alex, you've got something to offer. Alex, you have a talent. I don't know what it is yet, but you have to leave this place and try and find it. And so it took me a while to find it. But he instilled in me uh, a belief that I could contribute something. And that was so important. You know, he was, he became my role model, if you like. Why did he have the power? Is it because no one had ever told you in your life before, throughout, that you were worth something? Yes, that is absolutely correct. No one. Uh, oh. Such workers were sometimes polite and they would suggest to me, oh, you know, if you do well, you could be a labourer. But they never really took time to uh, ask what I really wanted to do or where my talent actually lay. Uh, I've always been creative since um, I was reading comics and I tried to create my own when I was seven or eight years old. They never took the time to tap into that uh, potential that I had, I feel. And so I think they failed me or they failed to even invest in me that time that, that I needed to um, maybe uh, work out or figure out what I can be good at, what I could contribute. The only time that uh, someone took the time, I guess, 
Mind you, I, I was a very captive audience. I had nowhere to go. We shared a cell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. You were a very captive audience, so, to be fair, yeah. <laughs> and so, By definition, you were. Yeah. I mean, at first, we were um, fighting each other, you know, because obviously two guys in a small space is going to provoke that. But after a while, I began to listen to him. And he spoke about his experiences in Jamaica growing up there and uh, pit toilets and walking donkeys and so on and mm -hmm. walking the hills. And if you want to wash your clothes, I thought, what? You had country. to go to the local river to wash your clothes and all that. Cause he was I, a countryman. Huh? Yeah, he was a countryman. I knew nothing about Jamaica. You know, only from the music that I was listening to. But to hear that first-hand experience from him, it kind of made me humble in a way. And it kind of made me want to um, uh, try and improve my lot, if you like. You know, because he mentioned to me that um, I've come from, I've come from a people of survivors who survived much worse than I had experienced, obviously slavery and so forth. And he said, I'm obliged to try and make my life better for me. And, you know, if I have children or not in the future, and that stayed with me, that obligation that, you know what, people have suffered for me to be here. That kind of drove me forward that, yeah, I want to make my ancestors look up to me and say, yeah, he started off with little, but he's done us proud. I mean, prison is a place where to be emotional is to be vulnerable and to be vulnerable can be very dangerous indeed. But yeah. were you emotional because this man believed in you? Absolutely. Um, and it's so rare. I think I, I refer back to the Stephen Queen drama now. It's so rare to see that vulnerability in popular culture for a young black man on, on TV or in film. Barry Jenkins did it uh, with, with his Oscar winning film. But um, on British TV, it's so difficult. It's so rare to see that vulnerable side where we are fragile at our most lowest and at prison, that's what I was. And I had no choice but to, um, but to express that because from what he was trying to uh, achieve with me, it made me um, feel so small at first. It made me feel so um, open. And I felt there is no point trying to resist what I was feeling inside. And so um, my expression came out in a lot of tears, a lot of emotion. And, but that's very healthy because I never really had that before. And you probably know that when you come to an inner city, especially to a place like Brixton, you've got to put up your tough side, your macho side. You know, you've got to put up 100%. your screw face. Yeah. And so people won't see you as weak. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah. going through that experience in prison... Because the weak get preyed upon. Yes, absolutely. And this doesn't just go for Brixton. It could be New York or New Orleans or oh. anywhere. Yeah, and so the town um, where I grew up in Essex, similar. Yeah, and so uh, and usually uh, people um, who grew up in that way they try to uh, protect that kind of hard side to themselves. But in prison, because I began to trust Simeon, that was his name, and so that way I could manage to open up and say, you know what, I'm hurting inside, I'm traumatized, I need help, I need some kind of guidance. I need somebody to believe in me. And we had those conversations and it's very healthy to do so. 
Alex, let's move on to your next object, which is an album. Tell us about this album and why you chose this. The album is The Right Time by the Mighty Diamonds, one of my favourite vocal groups from Jamaica. And I first come across this um, when I first came to Brixton. Uh, so 1977, 78. As I mentioned before, I was totally ignorant about my um, my forefathers, what they'd been through. Uh, I never heard of Marcus Garvey before. And um, I remember playing the first track and I heard the, the lovely melody, I need a roof over my head. And I just fell in love with the whole whole album. It was about black consciousness. It was about the black experience. It was about black leaders like Marcus Garvey. And I remember, I'm a bit of a geek. And so when I hear something good, I write down the lyrics. Um, I try to understand them. Uh, I debated the lyrics with uh, friends of mine. And it was the really first album that I had listened to, the reggae album that I had listened to, that had switched me back to um, who I really was internally and how I felt about being a black boy, you know, a black teenager living in Brixton at the time. You know, I used to go to sleep at it and sleep to it at night and listen to uh, those incredible vocals by the Diamonds, a fantastic vocal band. And it really, really hooked me onto reggae big time. After that, I was a reggae head from that point onwards. Was it fast-tracking you into a connection or a reconnection with a culture that had been certainly diluted from being in a children's home for so long. Yeah, it did reconnect me. Maybe it was always there, this love of reggae, but I just never heard it <laughs> up to that. Not not to a great extent anyway. I yeah, mean, of course. The pop reggae that um, was in the charts. I mean, I heard Desmond Decker and the Israelites and so forth and songs similar to that. But most of my staple was, um, at the time I left the children's home, was disco. Disco was the big thing. But um, when reggae hit me, I thought, well, that's it. I remember um, I used to go down to um, particular reggae shops in Brixton. There was Safana Bees. There was a general penitentiary. There was Desmond's Hip City. And I would just hang out there all day. As I said, I'm a bit of a geek, so I used to take out the albums look at the back sleeve and um, look at the back of the sleeve and um, and see who uh, um, the musicians were. People like Slide Dunbar, Robbie Shakespeare, Family Aston Barrett, all these incredible musicians from Jamaica. And I was especially engaged when I realised that the Scatterlights, the old um, Cox and Dodds uh, studio band, most of the, uh, the musicians who came from that, who were uh, who, uh, in that band, they came from a children's home a Catholic children's home in Jamaica. The people there felt that um, it was a good thing to teach the, um, their charges music. And I thought, wow, kids can actually leave a children's home and actually make something of their lives. You know, people like Don Drummond, who was considered one of the best trombonists in the world. And uh, there's so many others. So that really made me start believing. What a connection. Was it always for you with reggae music the consciousness or could you, you know, were you down with the, the Bashman and you could get down with the, the kind of perhaps the, the, the more, the slackness side of, yeah. of reggae music <laughs> as well. Should we say, should we put it like that? Yeah. For me offered consciousness. And then you had the lovers rock genre that I love yes. because, you know, um, I remember a popular sound system of the day was Soloid. 
and they were specialists in Lovers Rock. And Nihal, the, the crowds that went to their blues parties and house parties was incredible. I remember there was one on the sixth floor of a tower block and the queue went all the way down to the ground. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That was how popular wow. these sound systems were. There was one in um, Balham, a sound system called iSpy. They had the same effect. And Safano B, a famous Brixton sound, they would, um, they would uh, use two houses, two big, big four-storey houses in Villa Road off the Brixton Road. And they would start charging the pound entry from about 10 o'clock. And every single room in those houses were used. A speaker box was in there. All the furniture was taken out. Both kitchens in both houses supplied all the curry goat you could eat, all the, all the drinks you could, uh, you could drink. And they rocked until 10 o'clock the next morning. They used to put block board, painted black block board on the windows so the light wouldn't creep in. <laughs> Could you say that that was the first time in your life that you had a tribe? That yeah. you felt as though there was a, a family of people around you? That is absolutely correct. I found my tribe. Talking about a musical family, let's move to your genetic family and your next object, which is a yeah. photograph. Who is it a photograph of, Alex? A photograph of my mother. This is before I met her, before I had traced her properly. Uh, this is about the mid-1980s. And um, I decided that I really want to trace my roots, you know, and find out where I came from. So um, I went back to the social services and I asked them for my file. And I, I managed to start tracing um, my mum and, and her family. And I found one of her in-laws living in West Norwood. And we met, this is about 86, 87. And she showed me a picture of my mother and I, I broke down in tears. And what I was appreciating this photograph I was just imagining her life up to that point. You know, where did she grow up? Who did she date when she was a teenager? What music did she listen to? You know, all these questions bombarded my head. It really did. And I, and I remember jotting some of these questions down because I just needed to process this information just from one single photograph. And it was a beautiful photograph of her. It really was. That led to me eventually writing Island Songs years later. But I'll take it back to that photograph. Again, that gave me a hunger to really uh, try and discover the rest of my family because I haven't yet, up to that point, um, met my father. Uh, that came about two years later in about 88, 89, when I went over to Jamaica and, and met him. But it was a photo of my mother that really instilled in me... Um, this kind of first, if you like, for knowledge about where my roots were. Did you want to find out about her or did you want to find out about you through her? I think both, Nihal. I think both at the same time because as you're growing up, sometimes you're not quite sure about yourself, are you? Especially if you don't have any roots. And so I think it really helped me... Uh, become the man who I am as I, as I tried to trace my mother and my father. It kind of showed me that um, I do have this determination 
and um, it kind of made me aware that I can accomplish things, you know, by going through this search, this tracing, that I can stick to something and not give up. And sometimes there were disappointments on the way. Sometimes I knocked on people's doors and they would not wish to speak about my mother or my father. But um, it gave me that energy to carry on. And I found that there was a strength within me to not give up. So that's what it taught me. What is the answer to the question, why? Well, Bob Marley um, asked that question, didn't he, in Natural Mystic? Mm. Um, why did so many people suffer? Why, he asked in that beautiful song. And I asked the same thing, Nihal. You know, there's many of my friends who I grew up with in, in care who still don't know who their parents are, still don't know who they belong to. And sometimes I ask myself, why did I find my parents or why did I find my family? Why did life turn out reasonably okay for me? I, I have a career that I love. I've had an incredible life. I've met incredible people. I've met even some of my heroes. I, I remember meeting um, Tommy Smith, who won Olympic gold in 1968. You know, the Tommy Smith who raised his fist. Yeah, yeah, to the I've skies. interviewed him. He's unbelievable. Uh, oh, God, yeah. I, I just have to pinch myself. And sometimes I ask myself, why me? And I guess I do suffer from that survivor's guilt, if you like, where some of my friends and colleagues, some felt compelled forget about their trauma through drink or drugs or any other kind of vice. And there's no doubt that, uh, that some nights that trauma comes back to me. It can keep me awake at night. But now I've found my coping mechanism. I can, I can deal with it so much better. And it's, a, it's an incredible question. Why? 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 I can't really give you a full answer. All I can say is that... Um, when a moment arrived for me, when that test came, um, I decided that I wanted to contribute rather than this um, wallow in self-pity. And I do have ability. I believe in that ability to carry me forward. And that's what saved me in the end. What about pride in your achievements? Has that ever been expressed? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even publishing the first book, I remember... Um, you remember the Borders bookstores that um, of course, yeah. populated London yeah, uh, of course. 15, 20 or so years ago? Yeah. When Bricks and Rock was published, it was so unbelievable for me that I stayed in Borders for hours because at the W section, they had about 20 copies of Bricks and Rock. And I was so excited. I was um, almost dragging people to the shelves where my books were. I said, that's my book. That is my book. You know, it's, it was, I, I just felt it was, for someone like me to have written a book was an incredible achievement from, you know, from what my life was. No one, no one, maybe uh, apart from Simeon in prison, no one expected me to write a book when I was seven, eight, nine, fifteen, whatever, you know, going through uh, institutions and so on. So that was such an incredible moment for me, a moment of release and pride. Again, I have to keep repeating this. Uh, it was so important for me in terms of, um, I want my mother to see this. I want my father to see this. I want, if I've got any siblings out there, I want them to see this too. So it gave me an extra spurt of energy and determination 
to um, trace them and, and so they could share this moment with me, if you like. Your latest novel, Alex, is set in, of course, a very different Jamaica to the one of today, one of plantation owners and slaves. Or perhaps there are no more plantation owners, there are no more slaves, but there is a slavery of the mind, perhaps, for people who the scars still bear to this day, because, of course, the blood remembers, doesn't it? Yes, it does, indeed. Yes, it does. Um, I guess I've come full circle, Nihal, from reading The Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James all those years ago, almost 40 years ago now. And I've always wanted to write a story similar to that. And I've always been fascinated by Jamaican history and the slave revolts that occurred there. I mean, I've taken stories like Sam Sharp, Paul Bogle, but Tacky, Chief Tacky, that is a story um, rarely told. And the fact that my mother grew up in Richmond, which is adjacent to the plantations where the revolt took place in the St Mary Parish, it made it extra important for me to record this and document it. Because usually when we uh, speak about or write about slavery in the UK, it usually comes from some member of the establishment. Like, for example, William Hague, he wrote a book about Wilberforce. And he almost wrote it as if Wilberforce was the sole cause of the abolishment of slavery. But what he didn't say is that the slavers were given something like £20 million in 1833 to uh, give up their trade. And £20 million in those days was an extraordinary amount. But nothing was said about what black people did to fight against slavery, to um, impede the British government and British aristocracy of um, making so much money out of it because... It did impede the flow of money because they cannot cope with all these slave revolts that are happening here, there and everywhere all over all over Jamaica. And so I wanted to honour that. And indeed, I believe that um, what happened in 1760 under Chief Tacky, that revolt that he led, is part of British, British history and world history indeed. Why not? Because for me, they are a, a glorious dead. Just like, you know, we're honouring the dead of um, wars that the UK have fought over the last 100 years or so, or is it just up to the First World War? I'm not quite sure. And rightly so, we should honour those dead. But also, as a black man from Jamaican parentage, with that history, I want to honour our glorious dead too. And I believe I have a right to do so. And their names, Taki's name, should be written large, very large in world history. It's fascinating to read Kane Warriors and to know that this man existed. And, you know, if there's one thing I learned from being a huge fan of Public Enemy is that there are alternative histories yeah. that we are not being told. Absolutely. And they're Absolutely. every bit as valid. And Kane Warriors is now added to that. Canon. Absolutely. And I, I believe stories like Tacky and what happened in Jamaica 1760 should be part of the school curriculum. I, I'm not quite sure how to fit everything in, but I just believe that, especially in history, there is much more for our kids to learn, not just about King Henry VIII and his six wives and 
Queen Elizabeth I and a Spanish Armada and, and so on. There's so much more to learn, especially as we have such a diverse population. So what do you think then about the conversation that's been had for some time now about statues of plantation owners in America, people who fought for the Confederacy in the American Civil War, and then, of course, people like uh, Colston, whose statue, of course, no longer stands in Bristol. It's a conversation that has to take place. I wouldn't say I'm one for putting down statues. I'd rather a debate, a conversation, a dialogue uh, starting. But I think um, a lasting impact would be if we actually um, teach about these slavers and these imperial uh, people who held people in bondage. Um, in term, you know, uh, where are the textbooks about this um, stain on the UK's past, if you like? I feel that um, if I write about it, if I um, produce a book like Cain Warriors, that could have so much of a lasting impact on a young mind than somebody tossing a statue into a harbour. Because if I'm honest, when I walk through the streets of London or whether it be Manchester, I very rarely take time to actually stop and read what's on those statues or what's on the plinth or what's um, written there. It's much more lasting if we can uh, have it in our, in our narrative, in our schools, in our colleges, in our institutions. Let's hear a bit now, Alex, from Kane Warriors. Now, this is when 14-year-old Ma discovers just what is required of him when fighting for their freedom. Louis shook me awake. I opened my eyes and he pressed her broad finger to his lips. He peered out of the window and we could see the tops of the trees dimly lit by the plump moon. Mosquitoes buzzed around us. Come on, Louis said. Louis step outside. I followed him through the door and we made our way to our tall tree. We sat down, resting our backs against the trunk. The insects in the field were mighty loud this night. Strange birds squawked their squawks. Louis looked here and there before he spoke. We heard the distant crunching from the millhouse. Moa, Louis started. Your body good? What do you mean if me body good? You can't broke out if you can't run good, or if you can't kill a white man when you need to. I swallowed spit, gazed into Louis's eyes, and said, Me body good, man. Me can run as far as me need to, and me can kill a white man. Me not have no problem with that. I did have a problem with that. Could me really kill a white man? That is what me want to hear, said Louis. What is me job? I wanted to know. Louis checked over his shoulders. No one was about. I guess there were overseers patrolling near the entrance of the plantation at the bottom of the hill. We couldn't see them. Your job, Louis said, and Kiverton's job is to kill Mr. Donaldson on Sunday night, just after the sun drop. I didn't reply. It felt like those big wooden rollers that Papa feeds the cane into were now grinding in my belly. Sweat drowned my face. My pulse banged my temples. Use your billhooks, Louis continued. Aim straight for the gut or the chest. Use two hands and dig deep. And then twist it like you're making a fire. Make sure he not breathe one dirty breath again. It took me a while to answer. Kill Mr. Donaldson? 
That was Cane Warriors, read and written by Alex Wheatle, also read by Noel Arthur. It's available to buy and download now. There's a link in the programme notes of this episode. Now, in this podcast, we like to also ask our guests for an influential book. I think uh, your cellmate from prison introduced you, as you've said earlier on, Alex, to the Black Jacobins by C.L.R. James. Now, you acknowledge it in Cane Warriors, which means this book and the stories behind it must have been with you for a very long time. When was the last time you picked up the Black Jacobins and went through it? About three years ago on holiday in Jamaica, uh, around about that time. In fact, there's a new book um, about Toussaint Louverture, who led the Haitian Revolution, that just been published. Um, I think it's called The Black Spartacus. I read it about every two or three years, just to um, just to remind myself what subject matters I should be considering. And so it's going to inspire some other fiction too, I think, if I keep going back to that theme because there's so much unwritten about that period. I mean, at the moment, I'm concentrating on a period when um, Henry Morgan, the uh, he was a former governor of Jamaica, and indeed he was a pirate at one time, and he sacked P- Panama. And so I want to include him, include him in a story with, um, uh, in, you know, it's going to be a Caribbean narrative and see what I can create there. There's so much, so much storytelling that needs to be told. I need to read The Black Spartacus by Sudhir Hazareesh Singh. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but Sudhir, I definitely am. But uh, Hazir Hazareesh Singh. There you go. Hazareesh I'm, I'm not going to try to attempt it, so I think yeah, you made a yeah, good attempt. Yeah. yeah, I should be able to do that. It sounds very Asian to me, Sudhir yeah. Hazareesh Singh. Now, look, um, shall we discover your final object now, which is more of an event, actually? It's, uh, well, you tell us. Yes, it was an event. It was um, my son Marvin's nine-year-old birthday party. It was an incredible day. It really was. Um, we lived in um, Battersea, and um, it's the first birthday party we've ever held for one of our children. And Marvin said to us, "He wants to invite who he wants to invite." We said, "Yes, of course. You know, invite you know all your good friends." It was incredible to see that um, he had Iranian friends. He had friends whose parents came from Pakistan, from India, from America, from Europe. I think there was a couple of Polish kids there. And I was just watching this all and thinking, wow, you know, this wasn't like when I was young, where, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I had my tribe and that tribe, especially when I came to Brixton, was predominantly West Indian. But here is my son. He's not even discussing race. It's it's not even a thing for him at nine years old. These are just friends of his. It was just a marvellous, incredible occasion. It taught me a lesson, actually. You know, all this talk about race. But kids, when we let them be kids, then there's no issue there. They're just enjoying each other's company. They're just enjoying each other's friendship. It was such a wonderful occasion. It really affected me deeply. And so when I came to write my young adult series, the Crompton series, I had that in mind. I want it to be diverse. I want it to be these kids who don't see race as much as some adults might see race. It's, it's not an issue. 
race is not an issue with them. And that's what I discovered on that birthday. Yeah. Alex, do you ever give yourself time to go, I'm a bad man, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Everything you've been through, the start you were given in life, and look who you are, Alex Wheatle, MBE. Steve McQueen has made a film about you. Do you ever give yourself the opportunity to recognise what you have achieved? Yeah. Good. Yes, I do. Trust me, I'm very proud, very, very proud. When I speak to my mother now, uh, she says to me, you know, she has her quiet moments and there's a lot of guilt there, you know, because she felt she could have maybe done more. But, you know, she had no idea that I was, that I ended up in care. She just entrusted me to my father. And she says to me quite occasionally that um, Alex maybe you was meant to live this life. Maybe it was fated for you to live this life so you could write about it. And I half believe that. By luck or by chance or whatever, I came to this position in life where um, I can write about it to make people aware of what's happened, to put light on those lives that so often in the past have been neglected or ignored. There's knowing that, but also putting in the work and I have put in a work, and I'm very proud of that work. You know, whatever profession you choose, you have to work hard. I'm sure you've worked hard in your life, in your particular profession, to get where you want to be. Yeah. And so they're, they're not giving us anything, Alex. Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, when the manuscript wasn't quite quite working so well or reading so well, and I thought, oh my gosh, do I have to do another draft? And I've done five, six already. Yes, I do have to do another draft if I want to become a better writer. And I always had that kind of determination to try and improve, to try and give my best, if you like. And I'm most proud of that. So you should be talking about Steve McQueen. How did the film come about? I was part of the uh, the creative team. Um, I was part of the writer's room. And um, it, this was about five, five or so years ago. And so we all met every day for about three months just trying to um, work on the themes that Steve had in his mind. He, he, he already, he came into the room, he already had the, uh, the mangrove episode in his mind. That was very strong. And um, halfway through the process, he was really looking for a narrative that included a young black male who's uh, experienced going through institutions and one of my fellow writers, Alistair Siddons, he looked at me and pointed at me. He said, Alex, that is you. And so Steve looked at me and he said, Alex, are you holding out on me? I said, no, 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 no. And so that afternoon, I related my towel and jaws dropped. <laughs> and so the next day, I brought in copies of my social services files. And once everyone had read that and once I completed my, um, my story, Steve said, wow. I have to film that. And so he got on the phone to um, those at the BBC and said, OK, one of the episodes is going to be about Alex Sweet or his life journey. And that's how it came about. And I went on set last year watching watching this thing being filmed and I was reduced to tears again. <laughs> they were so accurate with the hostel where I was, the, the clothes that I wore, the flies that I had on my wall, 
Because, you know, um, I'm sure you know this now, Harold, that um, in those bricks and record shops, there was a mountain of flyers and of cards of about future of raves and dances 100%. and so on. All over the counter. Yeah, all them. over the counter, powered yeah. up, powered yeah. up. And they got that so perfectly right. And it just took me back to um, when I was this naive, impressionable 15, 16-year-old, this excited, very excited to listen to any kind of reggae. Alex, I could speak to you for hours, but, you know, I know that uh, you've got a life to live. <laughs> it's uh, so good. I hope our paths cross one day, Alex. Me too. And do remember to subscribe, comment, and most importantly, spread the word about this podcast. It helps us to make more. Should you have an Alexa-enabled device, you can find us there too. Transcendent Kingdom by Yar Jassy. Gifty is an inquisitive child who wishes to understand her parents' immigrant life and spirit of their past. But the reality of the American South soon turns her dreams into nightmares. Tragedy strikes, and in order to understand her brother's opioid addiction, Gifty turns to science, pitting her faith against her profession. The second time it happened, I got a phone call while I was working in my lab at Stanford. I'd had to separate two of my mice because they were ripping each other to bits in that shoebox of a home we kept them in. I found a piece of flesh in one corner of the box, but I couldn't tell which mouse it came from at first. Both were bleeding and frenzied, scurrying away from me when I tried to grab them, even though there was nowhere to run. The audiobook edition of Transcendent Kingdom is available to download now.